Podcast. My name is Sam. I am joined by my co-host, movie soulmate, co-worker, co-podcaster, Steve. How are you today? Doing fine. It's going to be a great podcast, isn't it? Oh, my God. You know what's funny? I was listening to this great comic uh, named Pete Holmes, uh-huh. and he was doing this entire bit. Uh, I was doing it this morning about how the British have this brilliant system for awkwardness, right? So let's say, Steve, we were at a party, and okay. you came up to me, and you said something awkward like, oh, man, I don't think my grandma's going to live through this summer. I'd be like, oh, like as an American, I'd be like, oh, man, uh, death, uh, that sucks. Like, you know, eesh. like Americans, like it's like an awkwardness hot potato, and we just pass it back and forth. But what the British do is if you were like, hey, you know, Sam, I don't think uh, my grandma's going to live through the summer, I'd be like, eh, hey, you don't think your grandma's going to make it, do you? And then like they, they rephrase it always in a question. And they and then you'd be like, oh, th- throws it back in your cord, right? Exactly. And then they'd be, and then you'd be like, yeah, I don't know, I, I don't think I'm gonna be able to deal with it. I'll make you blue, will it? <laughs> like that's what they would do. Interesting. That's me saving your terrible opening joke. It was pretty bad. With the funny record low. All right, so uh, should we talk about what we're gonna do today? Why not? So let's let's re- let's frame it as this: the two movies we are doing today are not hidden gems. People know about them. Um, they're both on multiple all-time lists for this and that. The actor is a hidden gem. We are doing Bob Hoskins today. He is the subject of our podcast because um, he's a hidden gem of an actor. And it's he's had an interesting career because at one point he was a leading man for at least two major Hollywood productions where he was the central role. I mean, for huge, big budget productions. Um, and then one of those productions didn't do well. In fact was a notorious catastrophe, which is, of course, the Super Mario Brothers movie. Was that a flop? I didn't know that. It was worse than a flop. It is a notorious... It is infamous. It is infamous. It's amazing that even a few people survive. Well, it's not Heaven's Gate infamous, but... Oh, it's uh, worse. You think it's worse? Because nobody looks back on it positively except Uh me. (laughs) (laughs) But in the sense that it, like, it destroyed the careers of most of the people that worked in it. <laughs> wow. And it's a marvel that uh, John Leguizamo and, and Bob Hoskins, I won't say got away unscathed, but got away with some semblance of a career. And what actually, I think that it ended Bob Hoskins' leading role career. I think that after that, he was relegated to character actor, which is, you know, in, in some ways what he's more suited to, but in other ways not. And we'll discuss it in these movies. Do you think... Side note, who who has a more survivable career after a big-budget disaster? Directors, writers, producers, or actors? Ooh, I would say actors. I think they get less of the blame um, for the budget, mm-hmm. unless they commanded an enormous budget. But at the same time, it's not always true, because Superman Returns was almost entirely blamed on Brandon Ruth, and highly unfairly. Um, he like never worked again, essentially, and it's too bad because he was a good Superman, and that's a good Superman movie as far as movies go. In fact, that's one of my favorite comic book movies ever. And as anyone on this podcast knows, I pretty much despise comic book movies. So every once in a while, it's kind of like also the guy from John Carter from Mars, which we did on this podcast. That movie ruined his career in many Taylor, ways. Uh, Taylor Taylor um, Kitsch, Kitsch maybe. Yeah. He's had some work, you know? It seems like they blame the actor. If it's an actor, they're being like, let's push this actor and see if they can be a big deal. And then if Mm -hmm. it doesn't work out, then they really blame them. See, that's interesting. If you go with an unknown for a high profile and it flops, that kind of confirms that, oh, 
Yeah. You throw them back in the, you know, in the pile. Yeah, I mean, directors generally have more ideas buzzing. Um, and, and they're going to be better at creating something on their own. An actor's entirely at the whim of the market, right? Of the people mm-hmm. who will hire him. It's part of the reason why Stallone making Rocky was so hit huge for his career. And more actors ought to do that. But most actors are not talented enough to write a screenplay. Yeah. Let alone a screenplay anyone's going to like. It's um, funny because some, some, some of them do get challenged. I think uh, Amy Schumer... Somebody said, well, go, if you're not getting any good parts, go out and write your own parts. So she wrote Trainwreck. Oh, interesting. Mm. But then Amy Schumer, I mean, her career sort of took a hit because a lot of uh, joke theft plagiarism type stuff got out and maybe like some racially questionable quotes. And I don't know. I mean, Amy Schumer's not a big deal anymore. Not as big. Yeah, that's true. She did, uh, I think a, a year ago, uh, she hosted the Oscars. But that wasn't really a huge uh, get for the Oscars. Yeah, know? right. It didn't seem... Well, Oscar hosting has been a terrible affair for years now. Yeah. Um, and now now that you can get slapped, very few people are going to want to do it. <laughs> um, so, anyways, let's talk about Bob Hoskins. Let's talk, let's talk about well, these movies. That was, that, that was the, the, yeah. the um, subject of my terrible accent opening. Yeah. I noticed that um, when they say isn't it, it's in it. Yeah, in it. I-N-N-I-T. Which is great, by the way. <laughs> In it, in it is a great way to say, isn't it? And I wish we could get away with it more. Um, all right, so we're doing two Bob Hoskins movies, neither of which are hidden gems. Um, these two movies are... We'll do the first one. I won't even say the second one. Um, the first one is The Long Good Friday. Steve, give us the, give us the stats. It was released in Great Britain in 1980. In the U.S., it was released in April 2nd, 1982. And I watched it when it first came out. And it seemed like this cutting-edge, uh, you know, early 80s. Things were starting to change. Things were starting to happen. Um, a little different in movies. But it was actually shot in 1979. It was made by this production company called Handmade Films. And if I'm not mistaken, they also um, made another great Bob Hoskins movie, Mona Lisa, which we might uh, Which one talk came about. out first? Uh, Long Good Friday. Okay. Uh, there's like a six-year difference, actually. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, it was directed by a guy named John McKenzie. Now, I never heard of anything he directed except The Fourth Protocol. Never heard of that. The Fourth Protocol, um, this, is, uh, this starred uh, Pierce Brosnan, I think, either just before or just after he started becoming James Bond. Okay, which is interesting. Yes, Because Pierce is. Brosnan makes a very important cameo in this movie. He, I don't think he had, he may have one or two words, but no, it's almost he does entirely not have silent. A single word. I think you're right. It, yeah, it's a completely silent uh, uh, cameo. Um, that is the oh, oh, Beyond the Limit. He also made he uh, Mackenzie also uh, directed this movie called Beyond the Limit. It was uh, with Michael Caine oh, and sure. Richard Gere, okay. and it was based on a Graham Greene novel. Like most Graham Greene novels, it sucked. <laughs> <laughs> so or so I hear. I, I didn't yeah. see it. I kind of wanted to see it. Um, this, this appears to be the high point, at least in movies. He made a lot of TV stuff. Mm-hmm. It was written by Barry Keefe. Barry Keefe, I've never heard, I, nothing, nothing. Uh, I, I couldn't find anything with that. Um, it stars, um, Bob Hoskins, a very young and very attractive Helen Mirren. Oh, yeah. Paul Freeman. This was re- released a year after he made, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Okay. But it was shot before he shot Raiders of the Lost Ark. And a guy named Derek Thompson. Derek Thompson is a guy who plays, I, I think, Jeff, his, his, left, his right-hand man. Okay. And I don't remember him any, anywhere, but he's pretty good in this movie. Yeah, he's all right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he's not as good as, as Scarface, but... Uh... Oh. Now, that actor, and I forget what his name is, 
Uh, his name's Razors. I think they call him Razors. <laughs> All I know is that he's in the Sci-Fi Channel Dune miniseries. Oh, really? That's the only thing I know him from. <laughs> I've, I, he's a very, uh, he's this big, brawny uh, guy, just a, a slab of meat, and he's, um, he's very intimidating. And yeah, I've, no. seen him, I've seen him in other movies. Um, so here's my question, Steve. Yes. Um, why this film? This movie has so much energy, mm-hmm. and not all of it supplied uh, by Bob Hoskins. One hundred percent correct. You know, yeah. this movie careens along. Start, you know, it starts fast and never lets up. This is the movie Guy Ritchie has been trying to make for thirty <laughs> years unsuccessfully, um, in my opinion. And by the way, <laughs> he referenced this movie in one of his movies. It's referenced in The Gentleman. I don't know where. Is it really? Because yeah, I've is. seen that movie a couple times. I really like the and, gentleman. I know we did the we did the gentleman on yeah. this, um, but it's ref. I think they say that it's referenced at the end of the gentleman, but I didn't remember um, where that reference was. Um, I'll tell you what. What? Well, I don't want to give a spoiler alert, so I'll let you go. Well, we'll, we'll we're going to spoil this movie. This okay. this movie goes past the spoil expiration date. <laughs> um, here's what I want to say about this movie. This movie reminded me a little bit of Get Carter in the sense that when I was watching it. And I, lo- I love this movie, and I'd seen it before, but my memory of the plot was hazy. All I remembered was I really liked it. But as I'm watching, I'm thinking to myself the exact same thing I thought of when I was watching Get Carter, which is, this is a nasty little movie. Now, should I be sacrilege and ask which one, or do we both know which one? We know one? which one, yeah, okay. yeah. Okay. That's Kane, a tough right? movie. Yeah, but that, that, that movie... That movie's nastier. It's, it's but this tougher. Movie's nasty. This movie's nasty, but this movie has a sense of wit as well. And warmth. Yes, it does. The Hoskins character is a warm character, despite his nature, his manner, as he calls it. Absolutely, and unlike Carter, mm-hmm. uh, Michael Caine's Carter, Cold this bastard. guy, this guy has vision. Yeah, uh, he get excited about things. He's vivacious, He's sentimental. Yeah, absolutely. When his best friend Colin, played by Paul Freeman, yeah. um, gets killed, it's it's devastating to him. He's a throbbing heart. He wears his heart on his sleeve yeah. the entire movie. Nothing is emotionally hidden from Hoskins' performance. He, he, he conceals nothing about how the character's feeling, and it's wonderful in that sense. Um, that is exactly what I was going to say about his performance in Mona Lisa. Yeah. He is completely guileless. Now here, he has to be smart. Yeah. He even asks his wife to lie to an American mafia member who's going to invest in his huge scheme right. that he has. Um, but he's not that smart in this movie. So let's just let me just give a quick, quick, quick recap. Sure. Bob Hoskins is a London gangster. He seems to be the top gangster in London, but he's very sort of low time. He he's not like he's not like a mafioso, um, but he's trying to put together this deal with the American mafia to redevelop this really seedy part of the London pier. Okay, he wants to turn it into like a nice you know place where people can live and downtown restaurants. And he sees it as essentially, in the future, a multi-billion dollar enterprise. But he needs mafia money to do it. And the issue is that the mafia sends two of its representatives to London to basically hammer out the deal with him. And the mafia is treated like a major American corporation. They're big business. They're not sort of low-time, um, you know, hard-scrabble guys like he is. They, 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 like, they bat their eyelashes at murder. I mean, you know, and it's the mafia. Um <laughs> So he's trying to put together this deal, and on the day that he's trying to put the, the deal together, people start attacking his crew. Um, people in his crew start getting murdered, which is going to put the deal at risk because it's going to show the American mafia that he doesn't have everything under control on his side. And that's the movie, him dealing with it over a 24-hour period, trying to figure out what's going on. 
And there is one crisis after another. Yep. It's kind of like Raiders of the Lost yeah. Ark for mob movies right. because he has to go from one bombing yeah. to the next. And, and what's and, interesting about the movie is it starts out, he's on a boat giving a speech, and he's saying, oh, I'm not a politician, but, which is what every politician says. <laughs> but as the movie progresses, you see his true, I would call it nature, but at one point in the movie, he calls it his manner. Um, you see his true nature reveal itself more and more. And when I say his true nature, I don't mean the fact that he's a murderer, right? I don't mean the fact that he's a gangster. I mean sort of how... What's the word? He's impulsive. He's an impulsive person. He he. Even though he's a gangster, he is without guile in his own weird way. Um, he he's so impulsive. He needs his girlfriend in the movie played by Helen Mirren is much more corporate than he is. Much smoother, yes. able to calm him down, able to get him to basically not be controlled by his id, right? His super ego, because this character is just like first thought, first words, first actions. He doesn't think anything through. To a great degree, but he has also been successful up to this point in in all of his enterprises. But he is very much a London street gangster. He's so rash and so reckless mm-hmm. that at one point, out of frustration, he gathers a, up a bunch of the, the, the head hoods from different neighborhoods, yeah. puts them on a meat hook, yeah. takes them into a, uh, a meat packing facility of, upside down. And by the way, I thought to myself, every gangster movie, there's a meat packing facility. <laughs> it's just a cliche we cannot get away from. It's funny. I was thinking more, I was thinking more like Rocky, you know, when Rocky uh, goes in that meat yeah. facility and starts pounding on a, I was on a slab of beef. when they find, of what's course. his name? Yeah, Frank Carbone or whatever that guy's <laughs> name was. It's a great shot because what yeah. they do is they put a, uh, they actually put a camera on one of the meat hooks, yeah. or from the from the point of from the point of view of the unfortunate mob boss, and they're hanging upside down mm-hmm. when they don't get anywhere and come to the conclusion that these guys aren't the ones. What is he? He, he like peels off some money. I give him give him a thousand pounds. Yeah, <laughs> like that's gonna bowl it over. No hard feelings, right? And it's funny you say the movie's got <laughs> energy, which it does, but it's still a British film. And I and you know people ask me what are my favorite country of foreign films. I always say England, right? Mm-hmm. The thing about the British up until Guy Ritchie, is that they're the masters of a slow-paced camera. So, you know, this movie does this thing that all the great British cinematographers do. I don't know if this guy was even British cinematographer, but it's the the camera that creeps in. It's not zooming in, it's mm-hmm. creeping in. It's at a slow pace. It's one shot. Very slow dolly. Very slow Can you give me dolly. an example of... Uh... I mean, it's all over the movie. Mm-hmm. It's all over the movie. Um, and the reason, when you talk about energy, yeah, it's got energy, but if anything, it's the score. That's really it's, it's Hoskins' performance and the score. the The main score of this movie is unbelievably fantastic, and it's actually one of the things that the two movies have in common that we're going to do today are just amazing scores that give you the sense of setting so well. You know, it's funny because there's a lot of synthesizer in the score. Yeah, and that doesn't movie. always work out. I think it always works out. Well, we saw a masterpiece where synthesized music was the only bad thing. Uh, Gallipoli. That's the only exception. Totally disagree. I love synth in movies. (laughs) The 80s, in many ways, is my favorite decade of movies, and I miss the lack of synth. Of synth, I miss the neon <laughs> titles, the neon blue titles. Like okay, now that I get, that I can get behind. Um, yeah, I mean, so let's talk about Hoskins for a little bit in this performance. This is, look, I don't know if you can call anything coming out of England a star-making performance, but this is what a star-making performance would be. And what's so hmm. interesting is that an actor like Hoskins, slightly overweight, balding terribly, would never get a role like this today. Never. 
this movie would have to go to a handsome actor who they would then ugly up. I mean, you know who would play this role would be Tom Hardy, without question. This would be a Tom Hardy movie. And I'd be fine with that because I like Tom Hardy. But they would not go to someone who looks as real and middle-aged as Bob Hoskins. Interesting you should mention that. Because apparently one fan of this movie was one of those um, oh, gangster brothers that Tom the, Hardy played mm-hmm. in, what's the movie? The Craze. The Craze. The movie's, the movie's got a different name. It's not called The Craze. Yeah, it's right, called right. Legend, which is an awful name. I know. Yeah. Uh, th- th- wasn't there a Tom Cruise movie called Legend? Was, uh, how in the world do you <laughs> I'm sure do they that? wanted to call it The Craze, but the, the problem Craze. is The Craze is already a movie, and a very strange movie at that. I don't know if you've ever it seen it. It was about, obviously, about The, the Craze, film? but it's a no, very no. odd movie. It's, it's oh. almost like an art house film. It's very oh. weird, and it's around the same time as this movie. Interesting. Interesting. Um, some people love I it. I don't love it. Uh, but it, I've it, never heard of it. It has merit. Okay. It's a strange film. So anyways, Hoskins, in this movie, you know, he's such a man. And what I mean by that, I don't mean that he's manly. I mean that he represents a type of man that you just do not see on cinema anymore, which is the average man with the hairy arms, who rolls up his sleeves and isn't good looking, and is getting by purely on gumption and wits and just... Just, you know, trying to survive in the world. He has a... This, there's a few movies uh, where the performance dominates an otherwise okay movie, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And these movies are legend... These performances are legendary. These are great movies. Uh, what I call great performances. Big, huge performances. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. So uh, one of them is uh, like Denzel Washington yep. in... Uh, uh, Glory. No, um, oh, Malcolm uh, X. No, <laughs> Devil in a Dress. No, his sec- his his Oscar Training winning Day. Training Day. Yeah, he's so gargantuan and, and so overpowering. He's smart, but he's brutal. Mm-hmm. Jack Nicholson in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Oh yeah, and James Cagney in White Heat. And there is a moment mm-hmm. that. Uh, uh, Bob Hoskins, he lets out a scream after he yeah. discovers a betrayal and does something about it. He kills someone. Yes, he kills someone. Somebody who's very close to him. He lets out a scream, an agonizing scream that is just like James Cagney. When James Cagney, who's in prison, yeah. finds out his mom has been killed yeah. um, in White Heat. Sure, it's that same primal. Uh, uh, you can feel the you can feel the uh, you know the screen shaking. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know it's his performance is it's just unfortunate that they couldn't find more work for this guy but at the same time i'm sure he considered himself very fortunate for the career that he had uh you know what i had totally forgot that bob hoskins died in 2014 too a long time ago i didn't even realize um it is depressing uh there's just something about him here's the thing about him okay I've never seen Bob Hoskins in a role where he was anything less than likable. Even in a role like this, where yes. he's a murderer, he's a thug, he is, he's not extraordinary. He's actually a pretty ordinary man in this movie, despite that he's like the kingpin of London. You don't get the sense that he's a step ahead of everybody. He's not, no. Yeah, you're yeah. exactly. In fact, yeah. in this movie... He always seems to be a beat behind yeah. that dark force out there, yeah. and he doesn't know, and the audience doesn't know yeah. who it is. Yeah. He always seems a beat behind. He thinks he's got everything mastered. Yeah, and he wears it so well. You know, so many actors today, they don't allow themselves to be portrayed as so weak, quite frankly. I mean, this is a guy who is so focused on um, displaying how strong he is, despite his obvious and apparent weakness. And one thing I was noticing about this movie, this movie is ahead of its time in one way, 
which is there's a recent trend in mafia movies, one of them being um, Killing Them Softly, which is a movie I actually quite like, and actually a hidden gem in my opinion, mm-hmm. um, and actually others where uh, State of Grace, a movie I love that is kind of mediocre, but I love it anyways. Whereas this movie, these movies about where how there are men who are, who are basically small-time gangsters, small-time crooks, trying to rise in the world. They can never, um, they can never basically make themselves corporate in the way that the mafia are. They can never, they can never defeat big money, whether it's the mafia or actual corporations. There's this new trend that's basically trying to show how capitalists are the real mafia, Uh and how if you're just a struggling two-bit gangster and thug and even murderer, you'll never rise above. The official capitalists, the official mafia, whether they're the Italian mafia or actual, let's say, investment banking companies, mm. that's kind of a trend in movies now. It's a very interesting take on mobsters. Um, and this movie is, has that take well ahead of its time, well before uh, movies like that started to get made. Glad you mentioned this because this kind of speaks to um, what I thought there was a comparison between this and The Godfather. Sure. They're almost complete opposites. Yep. In the in the Godfather, mm-hmm. the gangsters are courtly. They are intelligent. Okay, right. uh, uh, Don Corleone, he's um, you know a, a man of the old world with honor. Okay, not uh, not George. Is the name George? I, I, I forget the character's name. Um, he he'll destroy anybody who's in his way. You know, and uh, also. Um, in The Godfather, you can they kind of make the case that these people would be the head of corporations if they just decided to refocus their their energies. Like they're they're smart, they're cunning, you know. They they, they know exactly. They, they they're the great they're a great study of human nature. Mm-hmm. This movie puts a lie to that. They just can't stop murdering people. <laughs> but also, you know, it's funny you mention that because in The Godfather, the whole idea is that Michael would go legit. Then Michael would be the guy who had all the faculties, all the opportunities to take the Vito Corleone business and go legit and go corporate. And the problem was Michael couldn't stop murdering people who hurt him emotionally. You know, the the big thing, sorry, I'm going on a tangent here, but the big thing about The Sopranos that was so revolutionary, which in many ways um, The Godfather Part Two already did, is, you know, there's a famous mob saying, it's not, it's business, it's not personal. Right. And in The Sopranos, it was always personal. Always. Every single time. <laughs> it was never business. No one ever got killed over business. People got killed over basically an errant remark somewhere that hurt someone's feelings. It was mm. No one ever got killed because <laughs> of a bad deal. Um, so anyways, yeah. So in The Godfather, he couldn't take the Corleone business um, corporate because he kept murdering everybody and shutting everybody out who emotionally harmed him. And obviously it's most famously, you know, displayed through the murder of his brother. Uh, spoiler alert for The Godfather too. <laughs> yeah, if that's a spoiler alert for you, uh, so so here's well, the point. give it a go. The Bob Hoskins character in this film, it's all emotion all the time. Yeah. He does not have a cerebral bone in his body, <laughs> and it's wonderful to see. We do not get enough of characters like this. When he goes after, when he finds it's very out, Jake Lamotta, by the way. Jake LaMotta represented mm. the exact same thing in a movie I like less. Yeah, yeah, uh, just kind of an animalistic, mindless yep. beast. Now I won't go quite yeah, that no, far. I, I, yeah, I don't with think him because yeah. there there is a certain degree of cunning. Yeah, um, to this, he's character. trying to rise up in the world. You can tell this man came from nothing. Yeah, 
you know, and he's doing his best. And he has a vision. Yeah, he yeah. sure does. Which, which we find out on this this yacht, which is absurdly in this incredibly industrial place. Yeah, it's awful. How did he think this is going to inspire anybody, you know? Yeah. yeah. It, it's, it's, it's a pretty nice yacht, mm-hmm. but all of a sudden, you know, you look out, and the most absolutely, absolutely dismal, dreary uh, uh, you know, industrial place. Yeah. It, it, Probably didn't think that through either. But it also, it was, you know, as I was watching it, it was one of the first things I noticed. It was the perfect metaphor for this guy. You know, he's... Here's the yacht. Here's That's what interesting. Here's That's what interesting. he's projecting. Yeah. Right. The yacht is what he's projecting, but the <laughs> but he scenery, hasn't got out of that world. The scenery behind him is what he is. Yeah. Right. He is the he is the dirty docks. Ah, nicely know? done. And the yacht is. I mean, it's not me. No, it's only me noticing what what the director had to be intending. Right. You know what I mean? Like it's not. It's not a situation where I came up with, like, I'm sure that's what was intended. Sure. Just yeah. like how in the Banshees of Inishirin, the very first shot has a rainbow over Colin Farrell's shoulder. Like, you know what I mean? And he's got a smile on his face. And the first shot of the movie, that's intentional. You know, like, that's the last time this guy, this is the, the peak of happiness for this guy in the movie. Mackenzie, yeah, Mackenzie knows what, knows what he's doing. Uh, he, he's got... This incredible um, energy, yep. you know, like when he drives up to that explosion at one of his, uh, I think it's a pub. It's a pub, yeah. In the middle of kind of a kind of a, yeah. a, a, a rundown place. Again, he thinks this is going to impress the American mobsters, yeah. taking him into this place that, you know, uh, that's kind of dingy. Yeah. Now, the place, it has, um, I think, cement statues, and it has yeah. this outward look of elegance, but it's yeah. in the middle of this rundown place, just like the, it's just like yeah. the docks. And, you know, this movie also shares... Almost the exact same flaw that The Godfather Part Two has, which is a less than coherent plot in the sense that the overall plot we get, right? He's mm-hmm. trying to get this deal through. But basically, the reason he's being sabotaged, he's being sabotaged by the IRA of all people. This movie has a very interesting choice of antagonist, which is, you know, the Irish Republican Army of all people in London. And... The idea basically is they're trying to take him out for reasons I'm not entirely sure why. That is kind of unconvincing. It's supposed to be about revenge. Yeah. They're trying but to take revenge on him because... Something his, his men did. His, his right-hand man was, for some reason, offered to give money for a land developer slash city council member to the Irish Republican Army because they controlled the labor unions. Uh, of, the, of the councilman, right? yeah, yeah. And one of the guys he sent to deliver the money skimmed some money on the side, but at the same time when they delivered the money, security forces came in and killed the IRA, and then they thought that the Bob Hoskins crew set them up, and it really doesn't make any sense. Maybe that's that uh, Hitchcockian thing. It doesn't matter. I guess maybe I mean, it doesn't matter. In fact, they probably could have could have uh, done themselves uh, even better if they hadn't named who the force was. Yeah, just this dark. No, actually, I like force. that. I like that they include the IRA because it's mm-hmm. interesting. It's interesting that it's not just another mob. Another, That's gonna make you think. Another gang. They kind of hint. Uh, there's some dialogue they that hints that, that the IRA is trying to move in on London and be, become what a mob. No, they portray <laughs> them as a gang. Yeah. They're, they're completely discrediting the IRA as a political organization. Maybe this is a, maybe this is uh, their revenge on the IRA. Yeah. But one thing that's interesting is that. But they also mention that the IRA is different from another mob because they're going to keep having people. You cannot kill them all. They make a point that they're like a like a, a army of ants that just keep marching. The the IRA comes out on top. And you know what's funny is that 
there's a show called Peaky Blinders, and the IRA are presented as a huge threat in that show to the London gangsters. Like, it's it's almost like... They basically, every time I've seen the IRA portrayed, I've seen them portrayed as extremely powerful, which maybe goes against certain public notions of the IRA as kind of like small-time terrorists. I'm not sure. Well, I remember, actually, back in this time, it was kind of an issue because there were... A, I believe there were there were concerns that uh, you know a lot of Irish American politicians yeah. in the late seventies were condemning the violence over there. Reagan was condemning yep. it. Uh, Tip yep. O'Neill was was condemning it. And there was a you know they, they were getting their harm somewhere, and maybe they got them partly from the United States. This movie also uh, carries a British tradition of filmmaking that I love which is hiring pretty mediocre American actors to play American roles. <laughs> Whenever you watch any type of British television or British movie and they need an American, they get some guy that could never get a role in America. <laughs> and it's no different here. And at this point, I find it charming. When I was watching this, I, I, I looked at the, the head mafioso, who, you're right, he doesn't seem like a mafia guy. He seems like a very reluctant businessman. Yeah. And I thought, you know what? His accent's so terrible, there's no way he's an American. Yes, what I thought So I too. looked it up. He's American. He sounded <laughs> Although like, he spent a lot of... He's a singer, He apparently. sounded like he was Ukrainian. <laughs> like he had an Eastern <laughs> European accent at one point. <laughs> but apparently he spent a lot of time in Europe. Okay. Um, but, but I think that's, that's funny. Um, another remarkable thing about this movie is at the very end. All right, let's, let's get into it now. Okay. Before we get into it, though. All right. Spoilers? Or? Yeah, we're going to give spoilers for yeah. this movie, guys. Um, but you should see it. Um, one of my questions is... So his, he has his girlfriend, who's wonderfully and attractively played by Helen Mirren. And at one point, his right-hand man, who turned out to be the guy that kind of betrayed him, but kind of not, it's very murky, um, uh, tells her in an elevator when they're alone, it's just the right-hand man and his girlfriend, that he wants to lick her all over. And there's sexual tension in the elevator before he even says it, and then the elevator dings, and she says, you know, saved by the bell. Saved doll. by the bell, Do you yeah. get the feeling they've already had an affair? No. I, I don't think so. I why think this was his first attempt. Because I have a theory. I have a theory why they included this scene. Maybe to give a reference point uh, as to you know when the betrayal, where you can first see his, his betrayal. Here's why I think they included it. Here is the big spoiler. Two big spoilers of this. I think the reason they included that is to make you not feel too bad when Hoskins kills him. He's an appealing character. It's not only that. Yeah, it's not only appealing, but it makes the. So Hoskins feels terrible about the murder, but you don't because you know that even if this guy didn't deserve to get murdered for the thing he deserved to get murdered for, you know that if Hoskins had known about this elevator remark, he would have murdered him and never felt bad about it. <laughs> right, right on the site. Yeah. And that's why I think they included that. It's, it's kind of a way of making the Hoskins character still somewhat likable. That's interesting. After the murder of his right-hand man, who's kind of like a son to him. Because, you know... You usually are, are more protective of the lead characters. Yeah. Uh, well, in a way, I guess you, you could say he. Yeah. He murders his right man, his right hand man, very much in an act of rage, yeah. just like rage, not not like a Corleone cold style hit. And the thing about it is that the right hand man is so stupid because Hoskins actually signals his inner nature in the same scene. He says something about it's in my manner. And he's talking about who he really is inside, which is this dog that bites when it feels threatened. 
And the guy just starts pushing him about how he can't fight the IRA, blah, 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 blah. And then Hoskins basically takes a bottle, smashes over his head, and then uses the sharp end of the bottle to stab him in the neck in an extremely grisly use of uh, practical effects as you watch the blood splurt out of this guy's <laughs> neck, which must have taken a little device to squirt, you know, red, di- red, uh, red ink, you know, out or whatever it is, red dye. It's pretty gruesome, and you do feel sorry. Um, I don't feel sorry for the guy. I feel sorry for I, Hoskins. I, I feel sorry for the kid um, because, you know, he, he did seem like he was on Hoskins' side. He says at one point, how can you stay so calm? Uh, the Hops, mm-hmm. Hoskins character asks him, how can you stay so calm? And he says, because I'm on the winning side. And he just embraces him like, you know, this is my son slash brother to say that. The problem is when he said I'm on the winning side, he meant the he other side. He probably meant that, yes. Yeah. But he doesn't, but unfortunately Hoskins doesn't know I it. I only felt bad for uh. Hoskins. This guy clearly, they were, indi- this guy was constantly indicating he was going to betray Hoskins at some point in their friendship together. This guy was not, him and Hoskins were not going to make it through their relationship without mm. one of them killing the other. During that scene. Yeah. It, it, at any point, he could have prevented his own murder. Yeah. You know, Jeff's, he, he keeps pressing him. And then what really puts him over the top mm-hmm. is when he says, they think you're nothing. Right. Okay. You yeah. said you said yeah, you can't beat him. That's that, right. He said, you know, just watch me. Watch, yeah. watch when I uh, you know, take revenge. But when he says, they think you're nothing, like he's trying to very stupidly yeah. uh, hurt Hoskins. Yep. You know? Oh, and by the way, to lead to transition us, it turns out Jeff was right. Jeff was right. They do think Hoskins is nothing. So basically, Hoskins, once he finds out it's the IRA trying to take him out, trying to take out his organization in an act of revenge, he arranges a meeting with the IRA to essentially give them 60 grand in cash to get them to stop. And then in this meeting, which happens to take place at a, um, what are those called? Those derbies, destruction derbies where cars hit each other. Yeah. uh, he gives them the money and then has them all killed. He betrays them. <laughs> and he thinks he's taking care somehow of the whole IRA. In the most, like This is the most self-destructive actually scene in the movie. This is the scene where Hoskins' character just completely misreads the situation thinking that he can kill these IRA leaders and get away with it. Because after he kills the IRA leaders, he's very happy with himself, and he goes to the American mobster to basically tell him, hey, look, I've taken care of the situation. Let's get down to business. And he believes this. This isn't right. just him trying to spin yeah. the situation. So he believes it. He's, he, yeah. he's, he's riding high in cloud nine, and he goes to the American mobster's hotel room, and the American mobster's like, look, dude, I'm leaving. He calls the last 24 hours the St. Valentine's Day massacre. <laughs> yeah. um, he's, like, he's like, you do not have this under control. And then I think in one of Hoskins' two best moments in the movie, Hoskins gives this long speech basically about how these guys have no vision, the Americans uh, give nothing to the world culturally except hot dogs. <laughs> that, by the way, you just stumbled <laughs> on my favorite line. Yeah, you could say now, That stuck with me too. for a while. That stuck for me for a while. He says, you know, uh, yeah, I, I, I'm, going to, I'm going with the Germans. Yeah, that's right, the Krauts, because they have vision. We want to leave something more. A little something more than a hot dog. Know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> which, is, which is just fantastic. But, uh, uh, yeah, that one stuck and with me. It's also great, great line. because Bob Hoskins, I'm sure by most the upper class English, is not considered cultured. But he is considering himself cultured to this American uh, who's... It's kind of like a poor Englishman is still more cultured than a rich American. It's a very <laughs> strange um, ranking or tier system of mm. culture because there's no way Bob Hoskins is considered culture... By his richer peers mm. in England, class hierarchy is a big thing in exactly. England, which we which we felt which we saw yeah. this week at, uh, with the coronation of uh, Chuckles. Oh, what did we see though? <laughs> I want to know. Um, you know, uh, 
you've got uh, Charles, yeah, and Camilla, yeah, and then down in the hunts, you got William, but the thing is, and that, way but down, the thing is that you got Camilla Edward. Is as if the Bob Hoskins character became king. Camilla's just if this, it worked, she's just this, yeah, if it worked, she's just this divorcee that uh, had the most popular woman in England murdered, <laughs> um, and then became queen somehow. I mean, think about this: an actual king had to abdicate the throne of England because he wanted to marry an American divorcee. It was, she wasn't even going to be queen. He just wanted to marry her, and he had to step down. And here you've got this woman, Camilla Parker Bowles, who is one of the most classless like public figures in the media that we've ever seen, including Charles. He's a classless twit too, but he's inbred. I don't know what her excuse is. Um, but she made it. She's actually got the queen title. That's nuts. <laughs> I, I don't understand uh, British monarchy. The, they didn't I make really don't. Philip the King. They wouldn't make Philip the King, and Philip had a lot more class than this woman has. Well, Philip had a lot more class than his son. Anyways, that tangent's more, over. And more accomplished. Right. But yes, yes. Um, what I was going to say about the, the very last um, shot of this movie, it's a yeah. very long shot. Well, it's the most famous part of the movie. Yeah, it's, it's a famous screen. Let's say, I think it's a five-minute shot, not unbroken. No, it's not that long. It's about two. And I think, a half I think it might be pretty long. So like, I, yeah. I was reading and IMDb. It is unbroken. It's unbroken at one point to show Pierre Brosnan again. They show Pierce well, Brosnan. That's what I said. It, yeah. It's not unbroken. They actually yeah, um, right. cut away to, to Pierce Brosnan with that. He's got this evil smirk on his face. And you know what's great? Pierce Brosnan is Irish. He's Perfect. an Irishman. Um, so anyway, so so here's what happens. Bob Hoskins goes on this long. Uh, self-gratifying uh, rant against the Americans in which he thinks he one-ups them, at least. Even though he's angry the deal fell through, he feels like he's got one over on them in terms of his speech. And then he goes, he calls his driver to come pick him up in front of the hotel, gets in, the car immediately starts speeding away. He realizes his girlfriend, Helen Mirren, is not in the car. She's in another car basically being kidnapped, and he looks in front of him, and Piers Brosnan's in the passenger seat, pulls a gun on him, and the guy driving is actually one of the dudes who was at the race car uh, derby rally place. These are IRA members. The whole point is you cannot beat the IRA. And they are taking Helen Mirren and Bob Hoskins in separate cars to their deaths. And you watch Bob Hoskins' face over the course of either three to five minutes register shock, rage, um, uh, resi- sadness, and resignation. It's unbelievable. And even at one point... He conveys through his face the emotion of "I almost got it. Yeah. I I was this close." He does. He kind of like puts his tongue against his teeth, and and it basically conveys how he knows how close he was to having everything he wanted instead of being driven to his death. There are two movies that evoke this. One is the George Clooney uh, movie that I always want to call Michael Collins, only it isn't Michael Collins. Oh, it's, uh, um, Michael, Michael Clayton. Michael Clayton. You know who Michael Collins is. He was the leader of the IRA. He was the leader of the IRA. And, and there a, are ties to the filmmaker, too. And uh, that's a terrible movie. Yeah, it, it was blindingly dull. Yeah. But uh, just like that, there's mm-hmm. a, that one is unbroken. And yeah. we sit there almost uncomfortably in the presence of uh, my, uh, Michael, Michael Clayton. Only that's a, that's a victory. That's kind of like a relief right. and victory. Yeah, yeah. But there's another one at the end of The Gentleman. Okay, that's what they're referencing. I get the feeling that's the point. That, that must be. I get the feeling that they were, they had wanted to have him die. Yeah. Okay, yeah, and maybe maybe the studio demanded no, he's yeah. got to survive, or yeah. it does work out in the plot yeah. that he does survive. Right, I, I have to admit that. 
Cla- they're very interesting. That's why I like uh, the um, That's the reference, though. Absolutely. That is the reference to the movie. Yeah. But anyways, it's an unbelievable work of facial acting. And the real yes. sad part about that scene is not that Bob Hoskins is getting driven to his death, but that in like three scenes earlier, Helen Mirren is crying to Bob Hoskins, saying, please don't let them kill us. Yeah. The fact that, you know, she's going to get murdered. That's a uncom- completely uncompromised ending. It's, it's, it's fantastic. The, the ending is what makes the movie, because the movie's so uncompromising. Yeah. If he had, if he had walked away, there'd still be a really good movie there. Yeah. Wouldn't have the impact. But you know how Hoskins' character says he has vision. Well, the the movie has vision. The movie has the faith in its audience to pull this card to watch this guy who you're essentially rooting for over the course of the film, mm-hmm. and then not only to murder him, but not unfairly. He's not getting murdered unfairly. <laughs> He's got it coming to him. He took out the IRA leaders in London, this is completely justified, at least against him. And then my question to you is, is it justified against Helen Mirren that she's getting murdered? She knows what he is. She she is not in the dark. This is not a Kay Corleone type situation. She is an advisor to him. Right. I think she has it coming too. You lie down with dogs, you get up with fleas. That's the only cliche I can. I, I That's a good that. one. I've actually never heard that. I, I, of course, I, I do feel. I, I do feel for the character because yeah, I do too. she she's the smooth part. She she his she wants to be the smooth edge. Yeah. That 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 eases his way, greases his way toward respectability. Yes. But but she even she even her smoothness, her her elegance mm-hmm. can't can't you know suppress that you know. I, I think uh, I think. Uh, my girl, uh, Pauline Kale, said he's like a walking testicles. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, in in some ways, I get that. Um, he's just walking it. Yeah. I think she could have she could have said that more uh, intelligently, quite frankly. <laughs> well, uh, she, she was nothing if not vivid. Yeah, I think that he is. Uh, in, in some ways, why I like Mona Lisa more than this movie, mm-hmm. or at least I like his performance better. He's even more open. Yeah, and. Even more guileless. There is, he, he says, he, in a way, he's a very honorable man. Yeah. As as brutal as he is, mm-hmm. uh, Mo- Mona Lisa is a phenomenal movie, and just just touching on I it. I like Mona Lisa, but I think it's flatter than this film. I think you can't argue that this movie I, has I, more energy. It, it has more energy, but this movie, <clears throat> uh, the relationship between the people are far more involving. Yeah, I mean, Mona Lisa is a more sensitive film, and yeah. it's more narrow in its focus. So as a result, when you're more narrow in your focus on people... It's a smaller people, movie. But when you're more narrow yeah. in your focus on people, you can explore psychology in far greater depth. There's a, and there's a lot of depth t- to Mona Lisa. Um, because here, here's a guy who... He doesn't even, I don't think, he doesn't even know how lonely it's he is. It's his sole Oscar nomination, yes. and well-deserved for oh, Mona Lisa. Interesting. Uh, uh, um, Long Good Friday, he was nominated for BAFTA... It's too small a movie for American audiences. I don't know how he got the nomination for Mona Lisa, quite frankly. I don't know how whoever did the campaigning on that, good for them. It's deserved, Mm. but a small British film. I remember um, in 1986... Did Neil Jordan do Mona Lisa? Yes, he did. Yeah. Uh, This is before he made The Crying Game and and, and hit it so big with that. But it's not the same man playing a woman. I think they look alike, even though the woman in Mona Lisa is an actual. Woman. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But they You're do right. look alike. Maybe, maybe Neil yeah. Neil um, uh, Jordan has a, has a type. Yeah. But what I was gonna say is, kind of interesting because we just did Paul Newman a few years ago, yeah. right? Yeah. I remember the '86 Oscar campaign. I'm old enough to remember that. It was basically Bob Hoskins was the critical favorite. Paul Newman for as the sequel to The Hustler. Oh, and you know what's interesting? 
um, Touchstone. I learned this. Um, so our next movie was released by Touchstone. Touchstone is, I did not know this, the company that Disney owns when Disney wants to put out more adult-themed movies. And yeah. Touchstone also produced Color of Money. Okay, yeah. Um, we'll, we'll get back. Yeah. I, I, can, I can go in a slightly yeah. greater depth on that. Sure. But, um, I think Paul Newman, you can make a perfectly great case for, for that movie, which I think is underrated. It's directed by Martin Scorsese, The Color of Money. And they always call it, well, this is him uh, just you know, doing a studio job. I, I think it feels personal to me. And I think Paul Newman is fantastic. The subtlety, he, he's, he reigns it in. Have we had this debate before? My feelings on Color of Money, how I just cannot do it because The Hustler is my favorite movie ever, <laughs> ever. And I just cannot watch a pure work of art be turned into what they did in Color of Money. In Color of Money, I would have been just fine with if The Hustler never existed. <laughs> Paul Newman is 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 so good in this. I I, I get I, I get you, you you see it as an elephant trampling on your memories of of one of yeah. your favorite favorite movies. But there there's an elegance. This uh, by the way, I saw but I I saw the color of money before I ever saw the hustler, which is probably so, why you were fine with it. Yeah, I also don't he's recognize just the such same a character. Great, subtle, old pro. Yeah, it's a wonderful performance. I actually don't think it's the same character though, which is part of my problem. <laughs> I don't see Fassett Felsen, the one from the hustler. In the color of money, I don't see that guy. I see him because he's he's <laughs> a he's 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 learned an awful lot, maybe too much. How did we get on this? Oh, I was it was the Oscar campaign for okay. '86. Yeah, was um, uh, the critics just thought well, Bob Hoskins should win, but they're going to give it to uh, Paul Newman, you know, out of sentimentality. I think Paul Newman was a perfectly fine choice. Yeah, I mean, I I don't think Bob Hoskins not getting an Oscar is some great crime, but. I think Hoskins was fantastic. And if they had given an Oscar to him, I'd have been fine with that, too. He was so terrific in Mona Lisa and his relationship yep. with this woman um, who he may or may not be able to trust is fascinating. Let's do Bad Pitch right now. Okay, Bad Pitch. I got, I got Miller's Crossing Ooh. meets the Blair Witch Project. Wait, why the Blair Witch Project? <laughs> because the, the, these people fall apart okay. due to an unknown force that's constantly pressuring them. The oh, entire okay. movie. Okay. Get a mobster movie. And there, there are some echoes of Miller's Crossing mm -hmm. from Long Good Friday, obviously. Okay, so my bad pitch is also going to be our transition to the next yeah. movie. My bad pitch is uh, Bad Lieutenant meets Who Framed Roger Rabbit. <laughs> okay. <laughs> because Bad Lieutenant is about a very bad man <laughs> who self-destructs over the course of 24 hours. That's interesting. And so, guys, so our next movie is a complete 180 from this movie and it's who framed roger rabbit um you know steve i and this is my pick i have often said i am not interested in the business of movie business right i like movies not the movie business i do not care i'm not a trivia guy i used to be when i was younger to prove to everybody how much i knew about movies and then i realized why am i trying to prove who you know, finance this and that and blah, 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 blah. What, what I enjoy are the movies themselves, right? And I don't need to prove anything to anybody. That being said, the background stuff on this film is almost as interesting as the movie itself. <laughs> um, and let's just, all right, so for starters, let's just say a few things. One, you have this multi, multi-million dollar production budget uh, from the Disney Corporation, apparently, which I didn't know, by the way. I did not know that Disney were the, really the owners of this movie. Um, 
starring Bob Hoskins, of all people, right? This That's can't. Okay. This cannot happen anymore. <laughs> you no, cannot entrust such a huge movie to a man that looks like Bob Hoskins, and it is a crying shame. Not only that, he's middle-aged. He, he, yeah. he, he, the, the, the worst sin, balding and middle-aged. Yeah, and so Short. is his girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> oh, his girlfriend, Joanna Cassidy. Awesome actress. Yeah, she's Fantastic. great, but you wouldn't see a woman uh, like her in that role no, either. No, you wouldn't, unfortunately. It would be two teenagers. This movie has so much personality. This movie, by the way, beloved by everybody when it came out. Um, Steve, give, give some stats on Roger Rabbit. Uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, rated PG, uh, runs an hour and 44 minutes. It is by Disney. Disney now claims this. It was rich. It was it was out of their uh, Touchstone division, which, right. which started in, I think, 1983. Their very first movie mm-hmm. was just... Five years before this, with a Splash, yep. they wanted to get into you know releasing PG 13s something a little edgier. Yep. They started signing a lot of stars. Yeah. Now, see, I love the the <laughs> I love the minutia of the business. I hate to say this, mm-hmm. I love the minutia. Disney started um you know get, signing like Bette Midler, Nick Nolte, Richard Dreyfuss, all these contracts. And they, yeah. they're starting to make a lot of lot of money with these modest price movies. Yeah. Didn't do it with this one. This is the most expensive movie of the 80s. Really? Yes. Oh, I had no idea it about that. It came close to, uh, I think, 70 or $80 million. Wow. It wouldn't be until, I think... Um, all on the shoulders of Bob Hoskins. All on the shoulders of... That took us. You gotta and say, that Robert took us. And Robert Zemeckis, who's had a really weird career, because the guy just Forrest Gump, but then he also loves animation. So he's famous for Roger Rabbit, and he's, and he's also done Beowulf and the Polar Express, yeah. Which were very cutting edge animated films, and um, the, the Christmas Carol as well. Oh, that's right. I mean, the guy loves and animation. The, all three of those were really expensive uh, computer animation. Sorry, I interrupted features. you. Any more stats no. on this? Oh yeah, um, this it was released time. in, of course, June twenty second. This was definitely a tent pole. Yeah. Uh, a movie. It was directed by Robert Zemeckis. Everybody knows that. It was written by this um, this pair, Jeffrey Price and Peter S. Seaman. Peter uh, Seaman. Does that not sound like a, a pseudonym? I'm to so you? I'm so mature. <laughs> they were writing partners for a lot of these huge movies, like uh, the Wild Wild West. It's uh, an adaptation of a much grizz, grittier book, actually. Uh, yeah, by uh, I think uh, Gary uh, Gary K. Wolf called wrote "Who the book. Censored Roger Rabbit," which, which is a terrible name. I, I must work. It must work. Disney wouldn't wouldn't go go it's along with it. It's an awful name. But well, getting back to the screenwriters, this was kind of right up their alley. This is why I think there's there's greatness to this movie that isn't derived from the screenplay, because even though they they wrote all these. These huge movies where they probably had more screenwriters working on the Wild Wild West, uh, mm. the, the, the Grinch Who Stole Christmas, Shrek Three. These kind of movies, they're not, you know, they're not all that great. No, but they usually make a lot of money. This movie is better. It's a cut above, and I and I attribute that, uh, I think, primarily to Robert uh, Robert Zemeckis. It's one of the most critically acclaimed movies ever. It's in the top fifteen movies on uh, Rotten Tomatoes. And right. it's not just in um, in retrospect. It's not like people judging it 20 years later. The time it came out, everyone loved this movie, except for some asshole named Richard Corliss from Time, <laughs> Time Magazine. Magazine. Oh, he, Richard Corliss didn't like it, huh? Bad take. Bad. That's not a, <laughs> One cliff you don't want to be on uh, at the time is that Roger Rabbit's not good. Do you know who Chuck Jones is? No. One of the legendary uh, animators. Um, oh yes, I do. I do know Chuck Jones. Did all the a yeah. lot a lot of the best uh, Bugs Bunny movies, yes, and, right. and Zemeckis actually hired him yep. to do some work on this movie. He disowned it. 
he hated this movie. I, I thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah, and I think what he what he I always hated. I find that disappointed when when it, someone makes something that's great and then they mm-hmm. pretend like it's bad, like uh, or they don't <laughs> realize it's good, like like uh, Fincher and Alien Three. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's a, that's an interesting story too. But anyway, uh, that, that's about it. Uh, it. It was nominated for six Oscars. It won, but not the good ones. No, these were all technical Oscars. Yeah. Uh, it it was nominated better. for cinematography, best sound. If it was today, it would be best. It would be nominated for best picture. Yeah, no question. They nominated Absolutely. Babe for best picture. I love Babe, but come on, Babe. It deserved it. Yeah, no, this is my point. I think Babe if deserved babe... to win Best Picture. Okay, fair year. enough. If Babe 95. deserved, if Babe deserved to get nominated and mm-hmm. win, then Roger Rabbit deserved to get nominated and win. It was an incredible accomplishment. It and yeah. I, I don't know. They had something against Robert Zemeckis right, up sorry, to this point. I have to pause you because you said the word accomplishment. It's an incredible accomplishment for two types of people: movie makers and lawyers. This movie should be taught in law school. Um, the achievement. <laughs> That the lawyers did on this movie. I'm not a guy. I don't love lawyers. Right? I'm not like dying to be in rooms with lawyers. But the sheer achievement of getting the Warner Brothers Looney Tune characters and the Disney characters in the same movie in the same shots must have been a monumental feat of negotiating. I wish I had been in those rooms. They should make Steve. They should make a movie about the lawyers negotiating this movie. I swear to God, it could be good. I, I think there could be a lot of a lot of potential for a lot of movies, like the making of. Yeah. I think it would be fascinating. This would be a great one. Yeah. Um so apparently it had to be hard as here's hell. Here's how they did it. Disney promised Warner Brothers that the Warner Brothers characters would receive the exact same amount of screen time as the Disney characters. That is the sticking point, right? But then there's other parts too where I imagine in terms of the movie, you think the plot, you think what you're seeing is like just like the plot, but it's actually the lawyers. And there's a scene where uh, where uh, Donald Duck is play is in a fight with Daffy Duck. But if Donald Duck wins the fight, there's no way this movie happens. So the fight has to be even. <laughs> Daffy, has to be a draw. Daffy Duck has got to come to a draw. <laughs> exactly. It is just fascinating because will, this will never happen again. And Zemeckis is so slick; he makes it work. This is like Superman. And Spider Man being in the same movie today, it's not happening. Yeah, you ever heard of um? You ever heard of uh, uh um, the Towering Inferno? Of course, yeah. uh, very famous movie. Uh, to- uh, Steve McQueen insisted that he had the exact same number of lines as Paul Newman. <laughs> Good for him. <laughs> he went through the script. That's awesome. And you know what he found out? What he found out that he had one more line than Newman. And for some reason, he insisted that they give Newman one more line because he wanted it to be identical. That's honorable. That's, uh, it's honorable in a very petty way. Yeah, but hey, you know what? <laughs> if you're going to be petty, you should have some honor with it. Paul, Paul Newman couldn't care, care yeah, less. Yeah, of course. Newman said that was the one movie he ever did just for the money. <laughs> I've never even seen Towering Inferno. Oh, I've heard of it a million times, of course. That movie... We're really getting on side. I'm sorry. Yeah. That's that that movie pull, uh, brought me into movies. All right, is it worth me discussing the plotline of Roger Rabbit? Everybody knows what it is, but right. a, a brief, a brief, just so. briefly. Yeah. Um, human beings and cartoon characters live in the same. They cohabit the same planet Earth, and cartoon characters are not actually drawn. They exist, and they are actors for the most part. That's all they do is act. Um, and uh, Bob Hoskins plays this down on his luck. A private eye named Eddie Valiant, great name, awesome. Name. Um, and basically, he's hired by the basically the king of producing, uh, the king producer of like animated movies, 
um, to basically dig up dirt on his main star's wife. Um, his star is Roger Rabbit, mm-hmm. and Roger Rabbit's wife is an incredibly sexy cartoon uh, Jessica named Jessica Rabbit. Rabbit. Um, <laughs> and the idea is the, the producer thinks Jessica Rabbit's cheating on Rod. It's actually not clear to me, Steve, mm-hmm. why the producer wants Roger to know his wife is cheating on him. I know they say he's not uh-huh. doing good as an actor, but I don't understand how this will help him. Well, uh, he, he wanted, I guess he wanted to, him to, to break up uh, Jessica Rabbit with, you know, just get his mind yeah. off of it. R.K. Yeah. Maroon, I think, is yeah, his I name. Don't understand how, is a great, another I don't great understand name. how breaking the heart of your actor is going <laughs> to help your actor be a better actor. That part seemed a little weird to me. But look, this movie's not about plot. This movie's about the interaction, not only between the humans and the cartoons, but the concept itself, that they live in the same world, and nobody says to themselves, boy, isn't it weird that we live amongst cartoons? <laughs> it's not thought There's of. There's no origin story, like, no. how did this happen? <laughs> yeah, there is no origin story to this. It's just assume that it's happening. Yeah. And now that, there's a really cool wrinkle, which is that cartoons are basically immortal. You cannot kill them, or so you think. Yeah. Uh, there's this character called The Judge, played by the absolutely wonderful Christopher Lloyd, who... Boy, we could do a Christopher Lloyd podcast. I mean, such an interesting career from an interesting guy who yeah. seemingly gives no interviews. That people, I mean, Good how, for him. how many iconic roles has Christopher Lloyd had, and yet nobody knows anything about Christopher Lloyd? That's a good point. I never thought. You about know what I mean? That. It's yeah. just like he—he he may be the king, the king of that guy actors. Huh. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um. But anyways, so Christopher Lloyd plays this guy named the Judge who hates tunes. They call it tunes. And he developed a chemical that can kill them, basically. Like, the dip. Like, the dip, which yeah. is a great name, <laughs> by the way. What an awesome name for that chemical. Kudos to the screenwriters. Um, one thing I, I got to point out, and I have felt this way forever, huh. I think Roger Rabbit has a killer score. I love that score, and it is a sad score. Part of what this movie's about, and I didn't realize it just today. I actually knew this when I saw it even a long time ago, was sort of about Los Angeles in decline. That movie's very much about Los Angeles in decline. Even at one point, and one joke I didn't get as a kid I get now, is that uh, Bob Hoskins is riding the back of a trolley car, and these kids who are in the back of it say to him, why, aren't you, why don't you have your own car? And he goes, why? We live in Los Angeles. The best public transportation system in the world. <laughs> and anyone who lives in L.A. today knows it's one of the worst public transportation <laughs> systems in the country. They, they made a whole movie about the importance of needing your car. Sunset Boulevard, yeah. the whole thing, the, the impetus of it is that, that, that William Holden can't get, a, yeah. get, get by in Los LA, Angeles without a car. L.A. has a notoriously bad uh, <laughs> PT system. So, you yeah. know, it's just really interesting. So it, I think that the sad score... Maybe, you know, they intended it just to be the score because Eddie Valiant's a sad character who can't get over the death of his brother who was killed by a tune, and the way that his brother was killed was the tune dropped a piano on his head. Funniest line, second funniest line in the movie. Uh, What's uh, the first? Well, uh, Jess Gravitz uh, describing oh, herself. I'm not bad, I'm just drawn that, that way. Leg. What a great line. I don't know if it's funny, but it's just fantastic. Oh, it's, it's fantastic. It's just the best well, it was, line. No, I think, it's, I think it's funny too, but, but Joanna Cassidy... When somebody asks why does he hate tunes, yeah. she says it straight. It was almost so like straight. some like, like something out of airplane. And in that right? old in she that says, old accent, tune dropped a piano on his head. Goes, <laughs> but the way she can I can I hilarious. do my impersonation line? She goes, tune killed his brother, dropped a piano on his head. <laughs> like she does it in that really old like like like. Eddie Valiant, he's a good man. <laughs> you know, the like really that. affected uh, the kind of really Hollywood. The really affected yeah. Hollywood accent of the 1930s, I guess. 
But boy, this is a killer score. Um, Alan Silvestri uh, scored that, and I think he scored a lot of yeah. um, uh, Zemeckis' uh, movies, including, if I'm not mistaken, Forrest Gump, which has a very gentle yeah. score. Another wonderful thing about this movie is it seems to have a perfect understanding of the cartoon of the iconic cartoon characters that inhabit it. So at one point, um, when Bob Hoskins first goes to see what, who Jessica Rabbit is, he goes to the club that Jessica Rabbit performs at, and one of the waitresses is Betty Boop. Yeah. And the way that they present Betty Boop as this sort of down-and-out former big-deal actress is just perfect, <laughs> yes. who now has to wait tables. She's past her prime. She's a black-and-white cartoon, and cartoons are in color now. She, so now she's just... She's, well, she's, what's her line? Things have been a little slow since they went to color. <laughs> that's right. And then she's got another great line when Bob Hoskins sees how sexy Jessica Rabbit is, and he's like, oh, my God, uh, uh, Roger Rabbit's married to her? And she goes, I know. Lucky what a lucky gal. Goy. What <laughs> what a lucky gal. Lucky gal. Yeah. As if, no, gal. She says I'm sorry, gal. gal. Is it? She's implying that Jessica Rabbit is yeah. lucky to be married <laughs> to Roger Rabbit, which is hilarious. Now, if there's a flaw to this movie, okay, it's Roger Rabbit. Oh, okay. Hit me. Why? The character is obnoxious. <laughs> He's supposed to be. <laughs> the character is irritating. He He's is supposed not to be funny. He's not all that funny. No, he's not. He is not in the tradition. It's funny because he's really not in the tradition of the Warner Brothers type cartoons, mm. right? But but, but he's not in the he's not in the tradition of the Disney cartoons. But here's either. what's interesting: that studio. This is the most interesting thing, actually. Now that I think about it, which I didn't think about when watching the movie, the studio he works for is clearly modeled after Warner Brothers, even though this absolutely even absolutely. though this is a Disney cartoon. Yeah. That is interesting, that they had the magnanimity to do that, or they just wanted to say, hey, this movie blows up, at least we're not making fun of ourselves. They had to understand. Zemeckis knew, and I think I, there was a quote that I read. He said he, he wanted the, the humor of the Warner Brothers yeah. with the equality of Disney. <laughs> and that's you what know. they get in the opening animation sequence. Now, what's really interesting, oh, yeah. Steve, is I found the opening animation sequence. I've always found the opening animation sequence where they actually show a Roger Rabbit cartoon yeah. to be tiresome. I quite frankly just don't need it. I do not need it. I liked it. People that love op- it. That People opening, I, li- I like it. it. I like it. That one is more in the tradition. The humor with that is. Oh, I disagree. No, no. I, the animation styles all Disney. The, 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 the quality is yeah. definitely Disney. That's what I'm the humor, yeah. which is kind of dark. Remember, he says. Yes. Yes. I'm going to leave you, darling, yes. with, with uh, Roger Rabbit, she says about right. Baby Herman. And, and, if, and if anything happens, it's back to the science lab. I think a joke right. they stole from right. uh, Monty Python. No, no, you're right. The cartoon itself, right, the plot of mm-hmm. Roger Rabbit having to babysit this child, that's Warner Brothers. Yeah. But I'm saying the way that looks, the way it's drawn, is Disney. I, I totally agree. Warner Brothers I, couldn't handle the kind of 360 animating shots. They right. didn't do stuff like they that. They wouldn't try. They, they wouldn't, wouldn't try. even try. They never, they, never, they never had the huge vision, but they counted on, um, you know, really great stories. Yeah. And and I consider Bugs Bunny and the- classical music. Yeah, yeah, that's what Looney Tunes is. The Absolutely. reason it's called Looney Tunes uh-huh. is that every Looney Tune uh, short is a piece of classical music sped up and made loony. That's why it's called Looney Tunes. <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah. I didn't know that. Now, um, I think the biggest asset the Warner Brothers cartoons had was Mel Blanc. Yeah. I think Bugs Bunny Who's in this movie. That's right. He wasn't too old to do it. That's right. Um, uh, I think one or two characters, he, he maybe couldn't hit the high end. But uh, uh, 
I think Bugs Bunny is one of the funniest com. Uh, I think he's arguably the funniest comic in movie history. Do you know who Bugs Bunny's based off of? Mm-mm. Clark Gable. Clark Gable. That's right. That's why he says, "What's up, Doc?" What's up, Doc? Is a Clark Gable line. Wow, I, yep. I, I had no idea. Yep, he's even made to look like Clark Gable. Well, he does have a big yeah. He's got an overbite like uh, Clark Gable. And he's Gable got has. the mustache that Clark Gable has. He actually has the mustache. But what's interesting is that he was not originally conceived this way. He uh-huh. was changed to to resemble Clark Gable because Bugs Bunny originally is a psychotic rabbit. Yeah, and he wasn't yeah. that funny in, no, in the he really was psychotic. early ones. He was scary, and they decided instead turn him into a wisecracking yeah. know-it-all rabbit. His entire persona is based off of Clark Gable. Think about That's Clark Gable. Think uh-huh. about Bugs Bunny. It's the same person. Even mm. the, the carrot cigar. I would agree that uh, Clark Gable maybe mixed a little with W.C. Fields. Kind of that acerbic, um, you know, uh, smart-ass kind of... Uh, and speaking of Bugs Bunny... And confidence. The most, the most I- potentially iconic uh, frame of the movie is when Bugs Bunny and Mickey Mouse are next to each other. Yes. That's it. I mean, you have the That's two... That's like the ultimate the cameo. Yeah, you have the two mascots. Yeah. That would be Superman and whoever Marvel's biggest character, I guess Spider-Man, yeah. being next to each other. Well, Batman and Superman. No, no they're, all, they're both on the same, aren't they? That's right, they're the same. <laughs> Maybe Iron Man and... You're no, right. it would be Spider-Man. Um, Spider-Man is the main... I don't know too much about Marvel, and I think Marvel's more of a... I don't think they really have their Superman... But if they did, Captain America, maybe Captain America. And, uh... Yeah, yeah, I, I actually Spider Man's probably bigger than yeah. You're right. And Captain America existed before Marvel. They acquired him. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, Spider Man is really the guy. It's actually the Fantastic Four first, but I think Spider Man is really the guy. Fantastic then, Four was before Spider Man. Yeah. Oh yeah. Damn. Um. But anyways, let's get back. To I didn't know movie. any of that. <laughs> um, let's get back to Bob Hoskins. You know, he's oh yeah, he's in this Bob movie. Hoskins again. He can't. The way he acts, which I love so much, is he cannot conceal anything. He doesn't try. He wears everything on his sleeve, and it's refreshing to see because I've I've always said good actors go big, and what I mean by that is good actors don't pretend that non-acting is somehow acting. They have to portray what they're feeling, and generally speaking, actors that try and hide it due to lack of skill don't succeed. And he doesn't do that at all. He goes for it. When he's like going through the pictures of his girlfriend and then um, his dead brother, he's wearing it all on his face. Happiness, sorrow. It, it's just wonderful to see. Yeah. Now, you wouldn't put this in the same league as his performances in, in Mona Lisa or Long No, Friday, no, of course not. But what's just so <laughs> interesting about this movie. Because you, 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 he, he just he can't. Get this into is that the kind movie that is, death. quite frankly, his legacy, whether you want it to be or not. Yeah. This is his movie. This is a major historical film. That will actually, I want to say live on forever. I'm not sure it will. I'm because? not sure future generations of kids are going to care because I don't think I think I am, quite frankly, the last generation of kids to grow up watching the original Disney and Warner Brothers characters, like the, on Saturday mornings. That's and right, stuff. Looney yeah. Tunes and Mickey Mouse and all those guys. They yeah. become they've got become a lost art. I I no feel, quite literally because nothing's hand drawn anymore. It is a uh, lost art. I I feel for kids. I mean, when I was a kid, I I grew up on um you know Bugs Bunny cartoons Saturday morning. They were my favorite cartoons. Everything ran a dis- the best the second best ran. A I always say that I'm an old millennial. I was born in 1985. All right, some people call us zillennials. Um, because the the millennial. I'm sorry. 
Someone born in 1995 is completely different from someone born in 1985. It's not close. But the, the way I'll put it is this. My generation, 1980 to 1985, we're the last generation to have things concurrently made for us, but to also watch things made for our parents. I watched <laughs> the original Star Wars movies on VHS before they were ever touched by George Lucas or retouched. Like the original VHS tapes of the theatrical releases. That's how I watched Star Wars for the first time. I watched... The first Casper the Ghost cartoon ever, where he befriends the little girl. I watched the first Raggedy Andy, Raggedy Ann cartoon with the blind girl. I have seen all the old Disney cartoons with the trumpet, Timmy the tuba. Right. Like, I've seen all of that stuff. I watched it just as my mom and dad would have watched it. Um, so I watched Looney Tunes. I knew about Mickey Mouse and all these guys. These were the iconic characters of my youth. They are not the iconic characters of my son's youth. I'll tell you right now. That's too bad. Yeah. Now, I, I know that they're trying to, uh, you know, Disney's trying to incorporate that, but they've kind of shifted and made what used to be Mickey Mouse cartoons are now like, um, you know, the, the, the young Spider-Man, yeah. like, a, like the child Spider-Man, child uh Now let me tell characters. you another wonderful thing that this movie did. Hmm. They drew on celluloid. They drew these characters yes. on the film. That is never going to happen again. They ever make this movie again, everything's on a green screen. All of it. Part of the reason this movie works in a way that I think that, um, not to sound like a jerk, but if you don't understand film, you're not going to get, is that the frame rate is consistent for everybody. The cartoons are at the exact same frame rate as the humans, and the reason is they're drawing on the film strips. So as a result... As the film strip is projected, the characters' movements are taken into account for that. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. And and that was considered impossible. Right. Everything before was... that, before that, it, right? It, it, with with Julie uh, Julie Andrews, and Dick Van Dyke in yeah. uh, Mary well, Poppins, they, they, they would lock they down the that. camera. They would well, <clears throat> well, they did it, but in a very simple way. You wouldn't have. Uh, also, by the way, revolutionary film for this. And you yeah. cannot have Roger Rabbit without that movie. I am sure they took many of the techniques from that movie and further innovated them. Right. But I don't think they could make Roger Rabbit if, if Mary Poppins had not done it first. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Probably uh, had some of the same crew working on it. Maybe. But with, with Mary Poppins, they, they would lock down that camera. And maybe they would pan right or pan left. Yeah. But... You know, it, it, they weren't. They didn't have a swirling camera right. with the um, animated characters' proportions. Yeah, you know, changing. That that is really, really difficult to do. Another thing about that film that you can either look at it the result of what I'm about to say as the, as a failure of the movie or just simply the times because it could not happen today is the fact that Roger Rabbit himself did not get franchised. Roger Rabbit is not a relevant character in today's world they that's did true. not there were there were only three cartoons of roger rabbit ever made that's it beyond the movie itself he did not find a second life outside of the movie they did not create a roger rabbit world i didn't i, I didn't and I, I think that's the problem chuck jones had with it and and i i had a hard time getting past how annoying he was you know interesting it, it's it's not the kind of character that you can identify with like bugs bunny yeah or some sort of ideal cutesy pie to be an character. Idiot. You know what he's supposed know, to be, yeah. by the way? He's supposed to be an actor. That's the point. He's an actor. <laughs> he's an obnoxious, self-centered, insecure actor. Well, he's not mean-spirited, so there, no. th at least there's that. Yeah, that's at true. Le he's at still least a cartoon. Yes, yes. But he's an actor. He's just a yeah. dumb actor. Mm. Um, 
I want to go on a little bit of a tangent uh, because I've been thinking about this for a while, Steve, and today it really sort of became clear to me. I'm not sure I like movies anymore. Uh Uh-oh. That's a problem. Hear me out. I like films. I like films. I am no longer going to call movies films if they are not shot on film. Um, They don't deserve it, and it's inaccurate. There is something lost in digital video, and it's Mm -hmm. texture, and more specifically, the vibe that film gives. Our entire lives, Steve, well, not our entire lives because we're still alive, but essentially for almost 100 years of movie making, for almost 100 years of movie making, movies were made on film, okay? And that's why a movie made in 1960 in color is not all that dissimilar from a movie made in 1980 in color in terms of look. Yes, they innovated on film stock and cameras, but for the most part, films were largely timeless because film itself is timeless because it's an analog system. It's paper with chemicals exposed to the sun and then photographed over and over at a certain rate, the film rate, right? The the frame rate. Um, there's a rich quality to it. Yeah, and it's a vibe that it gives off. And there's a reason why I love a movie like... So a movie like State of Grace, when it was made, starring Sean Penn. I think we've done State of Grace. I don't think so. Okay, mm. so we'll do State of Grace one day. At the time, it was considered a rather mediocre movie. I was talking with another friend about this. But if you watch State of Grace today, it seems like a masterpiece. Because the bar is so much lower now. And the bar is not low, just lower because maybe the, the scripts are worse or anything else. These movies are shot on video. They're shot on digital video. And the smoothness of them, the lack of texture. So oftentimes, film is mischaracterized, the look of it, as grain. Okay, So let's say you go on, you, you probably don't have a photo app on your phone, like, a, like an extra photo app. Mm-hmm. But a lot of these photo apps will allow you to apply something called film grain, right? To make your photo look more like it was shot on film. It's not actually grain. It's texture. That's Mm -hmm. what it is. And that texture gives off a vibe. And the only way I can put it, Steve, is when I watch a movie shot on film that has the texture, it gives me a feeling, just a feeling that I can't describe, a visceral feeling of warmth and comfort, even if it's a serious movie, that I do not get in movies now. I have a very hard... When I look for a movie, I really don't want a movie that's not shot on film. And when I watch something I really like, um, like Banshees of Inishirin, mm-hmm. all I can think to myself is, man, this movie deserved to be on film. It deserved film. Film gives movies a novelistic quality. Maybe novelistic's not a word, but a literary quality. Okay. It gives them a literary, timeless quality. And video does not do that. Video is the merging of TV and movies. And obviously that merge is quite literally happening where, where movies are made for TV. But the problem is the movies are looking like TV because they're shot on the same format that TV has been shot on for years, which is video. You know, I, I wish I could uh, uh, claim this kind of, uh, you know, um, the sense that you have. I, I well, it's good if you don't. Really, I, I can't really, except for the most obvious ones. I remember a Collateral with Tom Cruise mm-hmm. and Jamie Foxx. One of the first ones shot entirely the in Michael videotape. The Michael Mann movies. Yeah. The Michael Mann movies were and distinct. They, yes, and they they, they and that was shot on videotape, yeah. and and uh, it kind of looked at it. I, I think that maybe the medium really um, served that particular movie. The reason those movies look different is that 
he did not try to clean them up and mm-hmm. make them look like film. Mm-hmm. Um, video now is made to look like film, but it doesn't. So it doesn't have a distinctive quality like Collateral and Ali have. It doesn't mm-hmm. have that. It just has is it's it's video, but it's trying to look like film, but it's nowhere near as recognizable as film. It's interesting you should bring this up because we were talking about The Godfather Part Two. Yeah, The Godfather Part Two also has a uh, distinction. If I'm not mistaken, it's the very last movie ever shot in Technicolor, and a oh, lot wow. of people thought the same way you do yeah. that there there was some sort of um, you know. Uh, luxuriousness yeah. to the imagery yeah. when they stopped shooting on, on Technicolor. Movies were trying, to, trying for more realistic looks in the 70s, and I, I, th- I guess Technicolor lost favor. It might have been revived yeah. with certain uh, you know, uh, qualities or so, but they pretty much gave up on it because they wanted something more realistic. I just think it's... In, look, there's a reason that the most powerful and great directors in this country... Mm-hmm. Um, who have the juice still demand that their movies be on film. Name some, would you? Scorsese. Scorsese still shoots his on film. Interesting. For the most part, but I believe he did not with that movie Hugo. Mm-hmm. Um, Spielberg for the most part, but he did not with West Side Story. P.T. Anderson to this day still. Um, I don't know about Robert Eggers. I think Robert Eggers does shoot on film. Um, but anyways, yeah, like... it. <sighs> I think it's, you know, we called them films. They were called films for a reason. It mm-hmm. wasn't just to be accurate. The medium was based on the fact that they were shot on film. And not only that, but like, you know what video killed? It killed Letterbox. It killed that format. <laughs> you don't see that anymore. It's killed so much. And look, if you take Lawrence of Arabia mm-hmm. and you use the exact same actors at the exact same age, shot for shot, sound for sound, Right? You do every single thing the same, but you put it on video, you don't have Lawrence of Arabia. Period. Yeah, now that would be like if somebody could do a filter to make it show me what it would look like if it was videotaped. Recreate it as much as possible. So you try and recreate Lawrence of Arabia as much as possible on video. You even shoot Lawrence of Arabia. You even put filters on the video to try and make it look like film. Uh-huh. You do not have Lawrence of Arabia. And the reason for that is the most important thing in Lawrence of Arabia is the feeling that the texture of the desert shot on film gives off. Without that, you don't have Lawrence of Arabia. That is the single most important part of that movie. Not the story, not the acting, not the music, not even the cinematography itself, the framing of the camera. It is actually the way that the desert is captured on film. That is what makes that movie so incredible. That's what makes it timeless. And you take away the film and you make it video... Video is not cinematic. It's just that simple. Video is not cinematic. Film is cinematic. And, and when I... Is it a lot more expensive, though? Of is course that it's of, more it's, expensive. It's, it's really kind of And video is better for independent filmmakers, blah, 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 blah. But at the end <laughs> of the day, the best movie on film is better than the best movie on video. Hmm. It's that simple. Movies are worse as a result of being on video. And I've decided... I've decided to take a hard stance on this and... I've Does Peter put, Jackson did, did he did he shoot the um Yes, they're on film originally. Ah, the original ones are on film. The Lord yes. of the Rings yes. films are. Okay. I personally I think in many ways film is dead. And I don't just mean film, I mean movies as we knew them. They're dead. And part of the reason I'm sort of, you know, why am I talking about this during a Roger Rabbit review <laughs> is two reasons. One, if they made Roger Rabbit today, 
of course it would be on video, but it would also it would be like the one where they'd be like, this has to be on video. Like, even if we have the option of film, we would never do this on film. The fact they made it on film made it so much more special. Um, mm-hmm. It adds so much to the movie. Um, and the second thing, the reason I say this is that, like, look, I'm glad we do this podcast, right? I wish there's another... I'm not recommending people listen to a different podcast, <laughs> but I do wish there was another version of this podcast for me to listen to so I can only go back and find movies because I only want to watch movies on film. That is really what I'm coming down to. It is not a moral stance. Mm-hmm. It's just I'm having a hard time enjoying movies that are not shot on film. It sounds like an, an aesthetic stance. It is an aesthetic mm-hmm. stance, but the aesthetic... Aestheticism? Aesthetic. The aesthetic. Yeah. The aesthetic. The reason I care is that the aesthetic is directly linked to a vibe which produces a feeling in me. It's that simple. I watch movies because of the feelings they produce inside of me. That's why. And I realize that without film itself, I don't get those feelings. The very thing I like about movies is not reproducible with video for me. It's just not. Interesting. It's not just about... It is not just about framing, acting, story, music, pacing, all that. It, the film itself, I realize, is important to me. Yeah. I, I kind of feel the same way with, with black and white. Mm. I, I think that there's a luxuriousness to, to that imagery yeah. that's been lost. Yeah. You know? And I know they've tried to ape it. Yeah. And um, it, it looks flat and ugly and like like newsreel-like. Yeah. Yeah. So let's get back to Roger Rabbit. Um you know, it's really interesting because here you've got Bob Hoskins. He does Roger Rabbit. Huge success. Huge success. Critical. Commercially. Everything, right? Bob Hoskins is riding high. Let's 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 put another big franchise movie on Bob <laughs> Hoskins. Let's give him the Super Mario Brothers. The way I will describe Super Mario Brothers, we're not reviewing Super Mario Brothers. The way I will describe it is it, yes, is it a commercial and artistic failure? Absolutely. Is it infamous for one of the worst sets in Hollywood history? Absolutely. Bob Hoskins has admitted to being deliberately drunk throughout most of the production. <laughs> he wasn't even an alcoholic. Oh, I gotta see this movie. He wasn't I gotta alcoholic. see this movie. But what I will say, my, my good friend Sean Jones, who co-hosts the, the literature podcast I make, is that the way he described the new Dune movie versus the David Lynch Dune movie is that say what you will about the David Lynch Dune movie. At least it had flavor. Okay, the new okay. Dune movie has no flavor. It's got no seasoning. It has no vision other than its um, its lack of faith in the material itself. Right? It's not trying to to faithfully reproduce the tone of Dune. It's trying to take Dune and make it as palatable to an audience as possible, which is not what makes anything good. What makes things good is its distinctiveness and people latching onto the distinctiveness of that project. Um, so Bob Hoskins basically is no longer able to headline big American films after the failure of Super Mario Brothers, and that's entirely his fault for doing it. <laughs> Sometimes when you do it for the money, you know, it has consequences. You know, I, I, I wish I could think of a, a lot of movies afterwards mm-hmm. that I really appreciated from yeah. Bob Hoskins. Yeah. Sweet Liberty Before... That's a mediocre movie made mm-hmm. by Alan Alda. Yeah. But it has a lot of very talented people with Michael Caine and Michelle right. Pfeiffer. It's a comedy. Right. He is the best thing in that movie. He is hilarious. But so the thing I was going to say about Bob Hoskins, I think that's really unfortunate, is that it seems like the Mario Brothers movie prevented him from even making movies like Mona Lisa. Like he was really uh. relegated simply to um, supporting roles in 
sometimes mediocre films. Oh, you know what we didn't talk about real quick? Hmm. Mermaids. He's in Mermaids, and he's excellent in it. He's very good in it? Yeah. That's it? That's all you got? He's very good at it? That's <laughs> well, a good movie, and he's really likable it's in it. It's funny, because what he, he, he takes the role that's usually reserved... For a uh, an actress who's like a, a TV star, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, but right. she'll do anything to do in movies, so she'll play the uh, the long suffering girlfriend. Yeah, you know, yeah. like a Jennifer Aniston role. Yeah. you know, I got to get on TV. Right. I want to make movies. They're not going to hire me for anything right. other right. than being sport. Although he is, he's got so much energy and positive. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, it's different from any of the characters that we've mentioned to today. Yeah, except um, that character in Sweet Liberty. He, he he's he's a ball of energy, but he's he's a, he's real positive. He's a lot of fun. Oh, he's great. And the other thing about Hoskins, it proves again, he's never been unlikable. I can't think of a single movie <laughs> where he's been unlikable. There was this movie with, <laughs> I got one. There's this movie with a Jet Li where he plays a bad guy. Yeah, uh, I bet he was likable. Caged or something. I bet he was likable. Maybe for a few seconds. All right, let's do the bad pitches. Bad pitches. Before we do that, one last shot at Disney. Oh, please. They, Warner Brothers decided to make a movie called uh, Space Jam with Michael Jordan, yes. right? They tried to recruit Disney, right, to bring some of their characters on, a la Roger mm-hmm. Rabbit. Disney said, no way. <laughs> That's funny. And after that, they, Warner Brothers swore they would never work with him again. Fair enough. I'm not sure that, I'm not sure that uh, Warner Brothers was paid anything. Or at least oh, much. Man. I don't know. They must. I you would though. think so. Warner Brothers didn't so. lose anything from not having the Disney characters in Space Jam. Um, <laughs> anyways, let's do bad pitches. Steve, you go first. Okay. Bad. We didn't touch on uh, some aspects about this. I, I had um, Chinatown meets What's Up Doc. <laughs> oh, really? That's good. <laughs> I love. I love What's Up Doc. That's it's, a really it's good. Fantastic. Pitch. I get my the problem feeling. is it's not a bad pitch. That's a really good. Yeah, pitch. that's a pretty accurate pitch. Peter Bogdanovich, I, I don't know this for a fact, but I swear... You could pitch Roger Rabbit with that. That's true. <laughs> you know what I mean? You could actually pitch the room. If you're trying to get Roger Rabbit made, you could uh-huh. pitch that. <laughs> we didn't touch on um, the racial aspect of Chinatown with um, the tunes being treated oh. much like African Americans were. I didn't were. think of that, actually. Yeah. That never hit me. Yeah. Nor in my reading... Uh, Around the movie. Note, note that... Um, but there is a weird Donald Duck thing. Did you read about that? Uh, Supposedly, Donald Duck maybe says the N-word. Really? In the Daffy Duck scene. And I kept listening. It's hard to tell because of Donald Duck's voice. I, and then I basically, there's a, there's a theory that Donald Duck calls Daffy Duck the N-word. Uh-huh. And then another thing that's not there that's proven true is that when Jessica Rabbit gets thrown from the yes, car... Yes, I remember and that. And Disney has been doing this for years. <laughs> I don't know what is with these perverted Disney animators, but they love putting... Sh- it, it's not just Obscene that. Obscene stuff, They just yeah. do it all the time. It's so strange. Apparently, um, more of Jessica Rabbit was seen than they had intended. And, but well, they I did think it was remedy. It's point. <laughs> well, somebody more than the it. studio execs intended. Yeah, somebody intended it. <laughs> um, but anyway, uh, if you'll notice, the tunes, right? Yeah, yeah. They only have two jobs in this whole movie. Entertainers or service and servants. Yeah, yeah, right. and uh, you can even say that they're 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 talked to in a derided way, like tunes, which happens to they're rhyme with a certain. They're literally segregated. Yeah, have a tune. Oh town. yeah, yeah, yeah. And 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 uh, tunes rhymes with another uh, offensive uh, oh, that's pejorative, right. You're and, right. and you could yeah, look at I, it that way. Never, I never thought yeah. of that either. That's interesting. But that's that's where we get to uh, Chinatown. Um, yeah. You know, with with the Los Angeles land deals and stuff like that. What's what's your pitch? Okay, 
Here's why I don't have a bad pitch. I thought about this. <laughs> uh-huh. Because somebody already made a bad pitch for this movie, and it resulted in Cool World. <laughs> oh, what a oh what a toothache of a movie. That is why I refuse to do a bad pitch for this movie. Because somebody's done it. Someone saw the success of Roger Rabbit and made went into pitch. a room and said, Roger Rabbit meets the Spice Channel. Like, I don't know. They're like, hey, Roger Rabbit, PG-13? Let's make it rated R and get the hottest actor in town, Brad Pitt and Kim Basinger, and let's make an absolute piece of garbage. Ralph Bakshi, I think. Ralph Bakshi. Oh my God, boy, that that did not put a feather in his cap. And that was that's his Super Mario Brothers. That's him yeah. really attempting to enter mainstream Hollywood and failing miserably. Yeah, and I don't I don't think he. I don't think they um, trusted him with anything. Yeah. I think Ra- Ralph Bakshi was one of the people who was considered to be hired on on. Uh, on this, along with Don Bluth, another yeah. famous Disney animator. All right, Steve, any final thoughts on Bob Hoskins or Roger Rabbit or any of these movies? Please see, um, besides the movies we saw, yeah. please see Mona Lisa. It's a fantastic movie. Yeah, and please see Long Good Friday. I assume all of you have seen Roger Rabbit. Anyways, this was a good one. Steve, until next time. <laughs>